Hello, John Dennis here on Tuesday the 2nd of February. Today we reveal how a University of East Anglia climate scientist concealed problems with global warming data. It doesn't sort of pull down the entire case for global warming, it's just a, a, a small part of the jigsaw, but it's a significant paper in a significant journal. President Obama unveils his budget with extra spending on education, jobs, healthcare and defence, while attempting to cut America's ballooning debt. We're at war. Our economy's lost seven million jobs over the last two years, and our government is deeply in debt after what can only be described as a decade of profligacy. Why growth in Britain's manufacturing sector has hit a 15-year high. Organic food producers attempt to shake off their middle-class image. And we'll stretch our legs on the most popular walk in Britain. On a day like this especially, you know, the winter sun shining down on the city below, it really is spectacular. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. First, our top story. The Guardian reveals today how a climate scientist at the University of East Anglia hid problems with temperature data. The statistics are crucial for our understanding of the speed of global warming. Phil Jones, who's at the centre of the investigation over leaked emails at the UEA, withheld data requested under freedom of information laws. Guardian.co.uk slash environment editor James Randerson has the details. I think this is the first bit of information out of the emails, the hacked emails from the University of East Anglia, that really touch on the climate science. Because up until now, there's been a lot of claims that, you know, the scientists were trying to hide information and uh, stop access to data and all sorts of things and the, the information commissioner's office has said that they didn't handle their freedom of information act requests correctly but nobody's really got at the science yet and what these e set of emails reveal is that a paper from 1990 that was talking about the the temperature record in china over the last few rec decades was based on some data that apparently were dodgy and that the climate scientists involved were trying to hide the fact that they were dodgy. How were they dodgy? Well, there were a set of 42 different weather monitoring stations and 42 of them are in rural locations. And the significant thing here is that, you know, if in the 1940s this weather station was next to a small hamlet that has now, you know, through the process of globalisation and the growth of uh, China's economy turned into some city of two million people, that weather station could have, uh, you know, increased its sort of average temperature that it's recording simply because of the urban urbanisation. It's something called the, heat, the urban heat island effect. And it's all to do with, you know, the fact that cities trap heat because of all this concrete around. And the point was, were these... Were these weather stations sighted in the same place and did people really know where they were? And it turned out actually with a lot of them, the scientists didn't really know and the records saying whether, where they were had been lost. And they even had their own colleagues, some of them saying, you know, you should be open about this, you should let people know. But they, they tried to hide that. In a paper that was published in a respected scientific journal and cited as well by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Yeah, the paper dates from 1990 in Nature, but as you say, it's still cited today. It's cited by the IPCC's most recent report uh, in 2007, so it's a, it's a significant paper. But, I mean, we shouldn't get this completely out of context. It doesn't sort of pull down the entire case for global warming. It's just a, a, a small part of the jigsaw, but it's a significant paper in a significant journal. The, the scientists themselves, of course, uh, Phil Jones himself, who is the, uh, the head of the climate 
Climatic Research Unit at uh, University of East Anglia. He's the guy who's had to stand down temporarily while uh, this whole affair is investigated. He was not able to comment because while the investigation's going on, uh, he's under a three-line whip, I think, not to say anything to anyone. But his collaborator, who works in the US, Wei Chiang Wang, he... He basically said, this was investigated by my university, I was exonerated, uh, not all the records were there, but any, uh, any changes of location of these weather stations were minimal and, and, and didn't have a, a large effect on the data. Nevertheless, climate sceptics will be using this as another stick to beat global warming science with, won't they? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, they've, they've been using these emails as a very effective stick over the last... Uh, few weeks and uh, a lot of those the the use of that stick has been frankly a bit disingenuous I mean there are some emails in there that on a first reading or or, you know when a quote is taken out of context there are quotes like you know there's the famous hide the decline email and there's another one that says it's a it's quote a travesty that we can't find a warming trend in this particular set of data those quotes, you know, out of context sound a bit incriminating. But actually, when you get to the bottom of those, they are, you know, they're red herrings. They really are not uh, saying we want to um, hide what's really going on in the data. What's much more serious, and I think the charges that that will stick from this whole affair, is the way uh, the scientists and the university handled Freedom of Information Act requests and the whole culture of a sort of siege mentality and a lack of openness in the way that it was all done, which, uh, you know, that could well have serious consequences for the university. James Randerson, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash environment. Also on The Guardian's website... I'm Jessica Shepherd, and on Education Guardian today, we have the news that for the first time in a decade, English universities' teaching budgets are being cut. And that's why there's an unprecedented demand for places. University leaders say up to 300,000 teenagers could be rejected from universities this year. Then there's the Gifted and Talented programme, which gave money to the brightest pupils in state schools. That's been scrapped. Why? All this on educationguardian.co.uk. The writer Martin Amis is publishing his 12th novel this week. It's called The Pregnant Widow. But he's caused controversy over comments about euthanasia. He spoke about them to the Guardian's book club. No, I mean it quite seriously. It's utopian, of course. It'll never happen. Um, Or not for a very long time. Uh, No, I'm I'm a fan of euthanasia. Um, And don't forget, I'm not too far off that myself. And I do think it's existentially far more terrifying. I mean, the idea of someone helping me on my way as I'm screaming my way through the last three months with a shot of morphine is nothing like as frightening as the idea that you can't get out. Um, And, you know, when you're, say, 70, you don't feel like walking under a bus, you know. uh, (laughs) know, There's got to be something easier than that. so I, I'm, I'm quite serious about that, and also what hasn't... And it's a, it's, I do think it's a remnant, uh, a vestige of, of Christian belief. I mean, there's a whole book about how shot through the American Constitution is with religious belief. Uh, you, know, um, you wouldn't believe how much of it is conditioned by religion. And I think there's a bit of that. But I, we're now in an emergency that my generation, the generation less and less affectionately known as the baby boomers, the baby boom generation, is going to be a curse on society of, of a magnitude that demographers say is quite new. 
Nothing, no, no demographic distortion has ever, will ever approach what we're now about to have. And I've read, the trouble with those quotes in the paper was that they're taken from my novel that's about to come out, and they're novelistic, um, satirical. But it's, it's absolutely true, and it's quoted in the book that um, a, a serious economist saying, for at least a generation, the business of government will be transferring money from the young to the old. Uh, the young have one child. We come from a generation of two or three children. They're all getting old at the same time. This is known as, in America as the, as the third rail issue that no politician can mention. It's like stepping on the live rail in a, in a, in a subway station. You're instantly electrocuted. Um, <laughs> It's such, a, it's such a huge distortion of uh, demography is about to descend on us. They call it, they call it, it's not my phrase, the silver tsunami. Uh, nothing like it in history. And he, you know, hideous oldsters like me, very soon, they're going to be stinking up the clinics and the restaurants, and, and there will be an extremely resentful younger generation uh, I, I can understand why. And uh, I imagine a sort of civil war, of, you know, with chronological cleansing. In my, in my happier fantasies, I see myself as a warrior in this war, <laughs> in a wheelchair with a GPS system, doing great damage to the young. Uh, but I, I mean, but actually, my, you know, temperamentally, I feel I, I, would be, you know, when it gets rough, I, w I would love a little booth, um, you know, with a martini and a medal, um, and the lethal injection. Martin Amis, and you can watch a video of Martin Amis at guardian.co.uk slash books. Now, the economy, and in a moment we'll hear some surprisingly good news about Britain's manufacturing industry. First, the United States, where Barack Obama has announced a $3.8 trillion budget plan to cut America's debt. Ed Pilkington's in New York. Well, there's certain things that leap out of the budget at you, and one of them particularly is education, where he's pumping in another 3 to $4 billion at a time when overall he's, he's trying to, to contain spending and try and... Uh, control the deficit that's reaching huge levels. But within that, he's, he's giving education a, a sort of shot in the arm, and he's also trying to give green energy a shot in the arm too, pumping more money into to that in the hope of creating new green sector jobs. Does it put into practice what President Obama said last week in his State of the Union speech? Well, in the State of the Union, he put out a challenge to Congress, really, to both to both main parties in Congress, that it's time to get serious about working together uh, and uh, coming together in, in, for the benefit of the American people. The story of his first year in, in, in government has been uh, one of a huge partisanship with the Republicans voting down everything or trying to vote down everything he's doing. And he's challenging the Republicans in particular to come behind his spending plans from Judging from the reaction we've had this morning, I think that's sort of whistling in, into the wind, really, because... The Republicans, perhaps predictably, have instantly denounced the budget's budget as yet more massive spending, and they're pointing to uh, a new historical uh, deficit figure 
of, of uh, $1.6 trillion. And they're saying this is just Obama acting as he has up to now, piling on the spending. Ed Pilkington. Now, Britain, where our manufacturing sector is growing at its fastest rate for 15 years, according to the latest figures. Guardian's head of business, Dan Roberts, explains why that is, given that the UK economy was only last week shown to be growing at a measly 0.1%. Well, they are slightly surprising because, don't forget, we've only just had the GDP numbers, which showed the economy barely scraping into the positive territory at all. And all of a sudden, we've got the best manufacturing figures for 15 years. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that these are quite odd figures. They reflect um, a change in manufacturers' um, uh, outlook. And given how deep the slump was last year, to see a rebound as strong as this um, should be put in a bit of context. We're not suddenly the workshop of the world again. But it is a sign of how the growth uh, is coming from the right places. And it's basically, it is the kind of export-led um, uh, recovery that um, the government hoped for when it watched the pound sink. You know, it's one of these, one of the flip sides of having a weak sterling is that when places like Asia, and indeed the US start importing again, which they are beginning to, British manufacturers are slightly better off than, than say, they would than, say, some European uh, manufacturers because we've had a currency devaluation. And so how will this then reflect itself in other parts of the economy? This is the curious thing. Other bits of the economy, if you look at them in, in isolation, don't look so bad. You know, consumer spending is relatively robust. We've been shopping our way through Christmas. Some would argue, I would argue, unsustainably, but nonetheless, it's robust. The housing market is pretty robust. Again, you know, you can say that a lot of it is just a bubble in the southeast and so forth. But And now, now the other piece of the, the big part of the British economy, manufacturing, that doesn't seem to be doing so badly. But overall, this is the, this is the, the confusing aspect. Overall, the GDP number is still very weak and there's still a lot of structural flaws. So I think it, it, it's too early and would be wrong to sort of uh, hang out the bunting on the back of one set of numbers. But it's, it's a reminder that all is not gloomy. And how will it affect the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee when it discusses what it's gonna, whether it's going to continue its programme of quantitative easing later on this week? Yeah, we see this as another two-pipe problem. The, the Bank of England is definitely at the, some of the most interesting meetings it's going to have for a long time because although most people are, uh, are agreed it's too early to raise interest rates now, the, the, there are the beginnings of, of, of various indicators that they need to be thinking about it. You know, inflation is picking up again. The economy is back in the positive just. Um, manufacturing is not as weak as we thought. So they'd have to now have a very fine balance about when do they start taking us off the life support machine? Do they turn the, the drip of quantitative easing off first? Do they sort of, you know, take a few pillows away by putting interest rates up? I mean, basically the patient is sort of is up and blinking and we have to decide, you know, how much help it still needs. Dan Roberts. The National Trust says more people than ever have downloaded suggested walking routes from its website. Clumber Park in Nottinghamshire and Ash Ridge in the Chilterns are among users' favourite walks, but the most popular route is one that takes in the skyline of the city of Bath, from where Stephen Morris reports. On a day like this especially, you know, the winter sun shining down on the city below, it really is spectacular. The sort of hard winter light on the Bath stone uh, makes it very dramatic. We're on a section of the Bath Skyline Walk. The National Trust's Matthew Ward is quite right. There's a tremendous view across the city's spires and towers and sweeping Georgian terraces from here. This six-mile ramble through wooded hills and meadows, just south of Bath, is the most downloaded walk from the National Trust's website. 
Click on the site and you can pick from more than 130 walks, lovely coastal rambles, treks across muddy moorland, hikes through lovely parkland. But this one tops the lot. Yeah, well, I suppose we weren't really too surprised about that because uh, we've always known how special it is and I think more and more people are um, enjoying it. You know, Bath is a very, very uh, visited place. It's a very popular place for people to come and they go and enjoy and they uh, sample the delights of the city centre, uh, the shopping and the spa and all the sights to be seen down there. But really, the wonderful thing about Bath is not only its buildings, uh, but also the setting. And here, and here we are on the sort of rim of the bowl. Bath is uh, very much down in the dip there. And um, on this side of the city, the National Trust owns uh, approaching 500 acres of, of countryside. And that's a wonderful thing. And it's not just the views, it's lovely, there's meadows, there's woodland, yeah. there's all sorts of habitats up here. It's, that's true. Uh, you know, we're barely sort of within a mile of the city centre and uh, there are deer and badgers and foxes and all those sort of things. And then on a field like this, um, the pasture itself um, is undisturbed. It hasn't been ploughed or uh, used for agriculture and um, is, is really good for wildflowers in season obviously and so there is all sorts of uh, you know there are nature conservation aspects to our work here as well and uh, these fields are grazed uh, you know quite quite carefully for maximum benefit to wildlife the trust is delighted that so many people more than a quarter of a million over the last 12 months are downloading the guides to these walks and getting out and about just behind Bath and the download table is Clumber Park in Nottinghamshire and then Ashridge in Hertfordshire, a place very popular with Londoners desperate for a bit of fresh air. A walk on Brownsea Island in Dorset is another guide that many people have been downloading. Brownsea Island's uh, in this sort of region, a uh, very, very special place, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to go and explore for a day. Uh, you sort of turn up at um, sandbanks or pool and take a ferry across. That's always a sort of an exciting thing to get on the boat and go somewhere. And there are red squirrels, of course. Of course, red squirrels. I've forgotten yep. about them. They're yeah. very, uh, very rarely seen. At the moment, though, I've got six miles to do here, so I think I'd better get going. I'll let you get going. Stephen Morris. Now, has organic food got an image problem? That's what organic food producers will be discussing this week at the annual conference of the Soil Association. They want to counter the perception that organic food is the preserve of posh people. The Guardian's Juliet Jowett says they're calling it organic elitism. It's the idea that organic food has come to be seen as something that only posh people with lots of money buy, that it's something that's very much a lifestyle choice. Perhaps people do it for health, but... um, maybe as much for status as anything else. And I think certainly it's become disassociated with the original idea of organic, which was that it was a a kind of holistic idea that was to do with the health of people, to do with the health of the environment, to do with the health of people through the health of the environment, to do with animal welfare, and a much wider view of what was good for us and good for the planet we live on. 
But unfortunately, of course, you know, because organic food is more expensive to produce and it's sold at a higher price to customers, um, poorer, poorer shoppers can't afford it. So, I mean, it will always be the, the preserve of richer people. I think, well, obviously, yes, it is often more expensive. My personal feeling is that sometimes that expense doesn't appear to be justified. Um, and if it is, I think that needs a better explaining. A lot of organic food is actually less um, over, less sort of expensive or less of a premium than ordinary food than we imagine. And I think that, so I think it's worth people investigating that. There are an awful lot of people who could probably afford to buy organic who don't, though. I mean, we're not talking about necessarily the very poorest of the poor buying it. I mean, not all food... Not all the food that's available in our shops is organic, but um, you know, there are probably an awful lot of people who could afford it if they were persuaded that it was better that could afford to pay for it. Now, if organic food is perceived as just being for posh people, what can the Soil Association, who's, who are discussing it this week, what can they do about it? Uh, well, there are a few things they're already doing, and I'd say probably the most notable thing they're doing is they're very involved in uh, school dinners. Um, they have received some money recently to expand a programme to take not just organic, but locally sourced and freshly prepared food into state schools all around the country, something that's obviously received a lot of attention since Jamie Oliver did a TV program about the very poor state of affairs with uh, food in a lot of schools. And um, as they point out, the woman running that for the Soil Association is a school dinner lady who they met and were amazingly impressed by and is sort of the driving energy and force behind that um, and is, you know, n- not necessarily somebody one would associate with the uh, the often sort of landed gentry who, who have seen as running this Soil Association. But I think that will probably do a lot to sort of spread the message, obviously, to children and their parents. There is an awful lot more they need to do, and I imagine that the debate they're having at this week's annual conference is hopefully going to be the start of that, um, of sort of finding out from people what they should be doing to get out there and explain the message a little bit better. Juliet Jarrett. Phil Maynard was the producer of today's edition of Guardian Daily. I'm John Dennis. Thanks for listening.